Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here to worship with us at the Vista. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Dave. I'm one of our pastors, and it is a joy uh, to be here uh, with you today. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. For the last six weeks, we've been in a series uh, entitled Reading Romans Backwards. Uh, we're taking a rather unique uh, walk through uh, the book, Paul's letter uh, to these house churches in Rome. And so we started with the back half of the book. And the reason that we did that was simply to kind of look at, number one, the audience. Uh, we, we said, if you're going to rightly understand scripture, you need to understand the audience that, that, that's being written to, okay? And so reading the back half really helps us understand who Paul's writing to. In addition, uh, it helps us see some of the practical implications of what he says in the first half of the letter. What often happens with Romans in particular is people get really caught up in the first half and they want to debate and argue theology and talk about Paul's stance or his position on this or this or this. And really the bigger picture is the practical implications that that, that leads to. And so it's a, it's a unique walk through Romans where we looked at the back half of the book first, and now we're going to jump backwards and we're going to look at uh, the first half of the book. And so uh, I get the joy of uh, talking to you a little bit about Romans 1. Now, some of you that are familiar with your Bibles, you know some of the content of Romans 1 and you're like, oh boy, right? Here we go. I need to wear my cup this morning. It's going to feel like a swift kick somewhere, right? Like it's Romans 1, the second half in particular of Romans 1 is, uh, man, it's just, it's just difficult, right? Because what Paul's going to say in the second half of Romans 1 is we're all really, really bad. Like we're all really, really messed up sinners. He's talking about Gentiles and he's like, uh, look, apart from God, this is sort of the condition of man's heart and God's wrath is being poured out on sin and sinners and it's not really pretty. It's not pretty at all. And it is just a no holds barred look at sinful man, okay? And so during the second part of Romans 1, just so you know, as this letter's being read, all of the Jewish Christians, they would have been sitting there going, amen, get them preacher, right? Like they would have been loving that because he's talking about the Gentiles. But then in Romans chapter two, Paul basically then talks about the, the Jews and he says, you're, you're not any better. Like you, you think you can attain salvation by like just being religious and you're all self-righteous and you think you can obey the Torah and that somehow you're going to earn your way into heaven or that God's going to be pleased with you. And so he unpacks in Romans two, then he kind of turns it onto the Jewish, uh, the, the Jews and, and all of the Gentiles would have been going, amen, that's right. You tell them preacher. And then he brings it full circle in chapter three, where he goes, look, the problem, the problem for both is sin and the solution for both is Jesus. Like both groups need Jesus, okay? And so that's a preview of like where Austin's going in chapter two and chapter three next week. What I wanna do this morning is I don't wanna look so much at the second half of Romans one as I wanna look at the first half of Romans one. Uh, I would call it the overlooked part of Romans one. And here's why, you know, we're six weeks into the series and we really haven't spent a lot of time talking about the author of the letter. We haven't talked a whole lot about Paul. Like Paul's this unbelievably popular guy. And I'm sure some of you, you know, some things or you've heard some things about Paul, but, but I want to spend some time talking about Paul and, and really what made him click and what, what helped him kind of keep going in ministry uh, when so many others would have said, nope, I'm out, I'm done, right? And I think Romans, the first half of chapter one, gives us some insight into, man, what, what gave Paul his confidence? What gave him his courage? What kept him going in spite of a lot of difficulty and hardship and pain? 
in ministry. So let me, let me just back up for a minute in my rather long introduction and talk about this man named Paul, all right? He starts out, his name was Saul of Tarsus, okay? Saul of Tarsus. And he was not a Christian. In fact, he was the opposite of Christian. He hated Christians. He despised Christians. His whole goal, his whole uh, job really was to persecute Christians to the extent that he stopped the spread of this movement called Christianity. He was anti Christian. He was literally going from town to town to town, finding people who were believers so that he could put them in prison. Uh, basically so he could persecute them enough that they would stop talking about Jesus. That was his job. That was his, that was his whole goal, okay? Um, he was a Pharisee by, by, I mean, he was very educated, highly educated. Um, a Pharisee was the most strict religious leader of his day. Uh, he would have memorized much of the Old Testament, which if you later read a lot of his writings, you'll see that he quotes Old Testament all the time. He doesn't have a library, you know, behind him that he's citing. He just memorized most of it, right? That's unbelievable. That's how smart he was. He also trained under, under the famous philosopher, a guy named Gamaliel. Uh, and so in addition to strict religious training, he was also educated in uh, Greek philosophy and literature. Uh, it was kind of like having an Ivy League education. Paul's the guy that ruined the curve for all the rest of us, right? You know that person? You just can't stand that. Like Paul was the guy that just, he ruined the curve for everybody else. He was unbelievably smart. He was fluent in at least three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And he might've also been fluent in Latin. So possibly four languages, all right? And so the problem for Paul, this unbelievably smart, brilliant guy, like, you know, you know the type I'm talking about? You ever, you're ever in a, Paul was probably the smartest man in most rooms he walked into. And if you ever engage with someone like that, what do you do? If you're like me, you just nod and pretend you know what they're talking about, right? Like, oh yeah, it's, yeah, good point. But in reality, you have no idea what they're saying, okay? That's Paul, all right? And he's using all of his wisdom and all of his, all of his education and training, all of his resources, all of his relationships. He's using all of those things at his disposable money to stop Christianity, that's his goal. Stop Christianity at all cost. And so basically the problem with Paul is he's on the wrong team, right? Like Paul's on the wrong team. And so what happens in Acts chapter nine is God changes that. God says, hey, uh, this guy, he's on the wrong team. I'm gonna put him on the right team. And so in Acts chapter nine, God uh, basically knocks him off his, his horse, his donkey, whatever he's riding, and he blinds him. And then God speaks audibly. Jesus shows up, speaks audibly to Paul. That will change your life, right? It changes Paul's life. Paul becomes a Christian. Instant, just crazy transformation, right? He goes from hating Christians to being a Christian. He goes from persecuting Christians to pastoring Christians. It is an unbelievable, dramatic change. Jesus literally changes Paul's heart. Now, last week, Austin did a really great job of talking about, again, some people want to get caught up in a lot of theology. And so Austin did a really good job last week of going, you know, people want to talk about free will, predestination and election. Does God choose? Do we choose? And he, he did the back and forth, which is really brilliant. Like on the one hand, you're like, if God just chooses some, but not everyone, that doesn't, doesn't that make God seem like kind of a bad guy? But on the other hand, right? Like if my salvation is about me finding God and then throughout my life, you know, my ability to hold on to Christ rather than Christ's ability to hold on to me, well, that doesn't sound like much fun either, right? And so we can, we can have these debates and reasonable Christians can disagree. But here's what I'll say. 
that no matter which theological camp you sort of place yourself in, or if you have any idea what I'm talking about at all, right? Here's the good news. The fact that Christ literally changes Paul's heart is really good news for all of us, right? Because that means that there is nobody that is beyond um, God changing their heart. Like if you have lost friends, family members, coworkers, people around you, you can pray for them and pray that God would get a hold of their life uh, because that's what, that's what God's in the business of doing. That's what God does for the apostle Paul. He just changes his life in an instant. It's a remarkable conversion story. It's remarkable. There's nothing in scripture anywhere that leads us to believe that Paul was like searching for Jesus. He secretly wanted to be a Christian. Like none of that. He was anti-Christian, hated Jesus, hated Christians. All of a sudden he belongs to Jesus and his life is forever changed, right? Unbelievable story. Then in uh, Paul's service to Jesus, you need to understand that he gives up a rather comfortable lifestyle. He gives up a a lot of lavish, secure life for a life of a lot of difficulty and hardship. He was a Pharisee. He made a really good income. He probably had a retirement home in the mountains somewhere. Like he could have just lived out his days and been good. But instead he follows Jesus. And some of you know some of the stuff that Paul went through, right? It's unbelievable. Um, he was obviously criticized at every, at every turn by a number of different people. He was beaten severely throughout his life uh, because of the gospel. He talks about being beaten with whips. So lashes, he received lashes. He talks about being beaten at other times with rods. And then we know that he was stoned as well. So if Paul like took his shirt off, he would have stripes on his back. He would have bruises all over his body because of, because of the gospel, right? We know that he was, uh, he was chained to the wall in many places. He was imprisoned a lot. I made this joke a few weeks ago. Paul probably had his own orange jumpsuit, right? Like, oh, it's Paul again. That one fits him. Give him that one. Like he was always in jail. He was always, he found himself in prison all the time. All right. He was shipwrecked. Um, and so again, multiple times, mind you. I mean, after the first shipwreck, I'm probably like, Jesus, can I do something else? <laughs> like I'm, I'm out. Um, but he was shipwrecked. Like we know that he spent like one whole night floating in the open, open sea. Like this is, this is the life that he lived, right? He, uh, he dealt with at times severe hunger, thirst, sleepless nights, sore muscles, all of it. This is what Paul endured for the sake of the church and the sake of the gospel. And yet his passion and his zeal and his confidence never seemed to diminish, right? This is what's unbelievable about Paul. I love studying characters of the Bible. They're fascinating to me. Paul is one of those you look at and you go, man, like I haven't endured a fraction of what Paul has endured. And there's days where I'm like, I'm so tired. Like this guy's unbelievable. Like what motivates him? What keeps him going? And again, a lot of people want to discuss and debate the words of Paul, but I don't think there's enough focus and enough people that want to imitate the work and the mission and the passion of Paul. Sometimes I think our focus is all let's, let's debate his theology. Well, what about let's imitate his life, right? Let's imitate what he did. He writes two-thirds of our New Testament. He was an unbelievable author and preacher. He traveled on three missionary journeys planting churches. In fact, uh, the, the, over half of the book of Acts, which is like the history book of the New Testament, is all about Paul's missionary journeys and his travels and all of the churches that he planted. Um, and a couple other things I'll say about him. Paul was not what you would call a, a vibrant strapping young man, right? I don't know what you think of when you think of what the apostle Paul looked like. Um, 
So we have a, a picture. This is the earliest uh, painting that we know of, of the Apostle Paul. It was found inside a cave outside of the biblical city of Ephesus. Okay. And so um, this painting itself would have been painted uh, many, many, many years after Paul's death. And so it wasn't like Paul's not posing for this picture while the, you know, an artist is giving the rendering. This is uh, just from, from um, you know, uh, historical record of what people think that Paul looked like. One of the earliest sources we have, a second century apocryphal, um, uh, apocryphal source described Paul's physical features. And it said basically uh, that he was a very short man. So uh, short being under 5'5". Five five. So I'm pretty short. Paul would have been considerably shorter than me. All right. In addition, uh, the Apostle Paul had a, a bald or mostly bald head. So he probably had the old, the, the old man ring around, you know what I'm talking about? Like he had the ring around thing going on, right? He, uh, he was also, in addition to being short and bald, it says that he had um, a, a hooked and kind of crooked nose and he had really uh, kind of um, skinny uh, uh, bow-legged legs where he kind of waddled when he walked a little bit, probably from all the beatings that he took, right? And so here's my point, like, Paul was not this unbelievably strapping, super strong. You, he wouldn't walk into a room and everybody's just eyes turned to him. Like in some ways, one source I read said his appearance might've been against him in a lot of ways. Like you would look at Paul and go, really? That, that guy, <laughs> right? Like, and yet he, he writes and he preaches with unbelievable confidence, unbelievable confidence. And in spite of all of his hardships and persecution, he just presses on, he just keeps going. So this is why Paul is just unbelievably fascinating to me. A couple last things. Um, you're going to need to know that some things Paul writes are really hard to understand. Okay. I mentioned earlier, smartest guy in the room, brilliant. And sometimes when really smart people talk again, you're just like, uh, what? That was Paul. Okay. And this is encouraging. Even Peter, Peter, who was like the leader of the disciples, when he writes his epistle in 2 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, even Peter goes, hey, you know that guy, Paul? Some of the things he writes are really hard to understand, right? Like we're in good, if you ever read Paul and you're like, what? Peter was the same way. Some people just read Paul and didn't understand what he was talking about. Some things are confusing. And then finally, you also need to know that some things Paul says are a little bit offensive, they're a little bit offensive. Like you, you read some stuff Paul says, or you hear some sermons that are recorded for us and you're, you're like, ow, that stings a little bit, which again, I would say is the sign of a good pastor, right? Like, I'll just say this. I said this in the first service. If you always totally 100% um, agree with every single thing all of your pastors say all the time, like if there's never any conviction or there's never anything that, you know, your pastors say that calls you to go, ouch, a little bit, then you probably need to change churches, right? Because like going back to the prophets of the Old Testament and, and, and pastors, part of our role is to preach God's word. And sometimes when, you know, we're uh, sinful human beings and we sort of butt up against what God says, there ought to be something in us sometimes that goes, yeah, like that's, that's convicting a little bit, like that stings a little bit, right? And this is what you get when you read Paul. Man, sometimes it's just going to rub you the wrong way, but it's good. It's good for you, Right? So there's a little bit about Paul. And again, what I want to do is just, I want to think through like what, what makes this guy keep going? What makes this guy press on? How does this kind of short, you know, wiry looking bald headed guy, like how does he have such confidence? What feeds him? What makes him tick? And I think Romans 1 gives us some really good indication of what makes Paul uh, have his confidence. Here we go. Romans chapter 1. This is the way he starts his letter. 
He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. He was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the first thing that I notice in Paul's introduction is that part of what gives Paul his confidence is that Paul operates out of a strong sense of identity. You notice that? Paul operates out of a strong sense of identity. Paul could have started his letters using a number of different labels, right? He could have used a number of different labels. You know, he could have cited all of his educational credentials. He could have cited, just again, uh, he was a Pharisee trained under Gamaliel. I mean, he could have cited all that. He could have said, I'm a pastor. I'm a, I'm a missionary. I've planted more churches. Like, I'm a, he could have talked about being a tent maker. He could have talked about being an author and a writer. And there's a lot of different labels Paul could have used in his introduction to sort of reveal to you who he was. But in every single letter Paul writes, in every letter of the New Testament, he either says, I'm a servant or bondservant of Christ and or I'm an apostle of Christ. Here's what Paul wants you to know. Above any other label that could be given to Paul, Paul wants the reader to know that above anything else, his identity is that he belongs to Jesus. Above anything else, Paul belongs to Jesus. I don't have a ton of time to kind of unpack this idea, but listen, I think part of what is, is, is killing us, and when I say us, I don't mean the outside world. We can't control the outside world right? They're going to they're gonna do what they're going to do. They're going to get their message from culture. But part of what's hurting, I think, even some of us that are in the church in Christ is that we find our identity in a lot of other stuff except Christ. Like our culture screams that you should find your identity in a number of things. Your identity should be rooted in, you know, your career, your job, what you do, your family. Your, your culture is like your, your identity first and foremost should be about your gender, your sexuality. Like it's just screaming that all of these things should define you. Man, and some of us in the church, man, we, we just buy into that. Like we are who culture says we are. We are who the world says we are. And Paul's saying above anything else, Paul's saying, I am who Christ says I am that we operate out of the fact that we are beloved children of a holy God. When you get up in the morning, you get up in the morning and you go to work or you, you serve and you love people. Listen, you don't get up and do what you do for the approval of everybody else. You operate out of the fact that you are a beloved child of God. You don't have to earn his love. He already loves you. You don't have to prove yourself to God. He's already gone to a cross, died on the cross for your sin. Like if we could learn to find our identity in Christ, I'm telling you, it will change your life. It will change your ministry because it won't matter what other people think about you. It won't matter what you've done or what's been done to you. Your identity will be rooted in the fact that you are a child of God and you belong to him above all else. And that's, that's the first thing. When you read his introduction, he doesn't say, I, Paul, PhD, and da, da, da. He says, I, Paul, a, a bondservant, a servant of Christ Jesus, an apostle. That's who Paul wants you to know that he is. And his whole ministry is rooted in that fact. We need to operate 
out of a strong sense of identity if we're going to live out what God's called us to live out. We'll go a little bit further. Look at the verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see that? This is really important. My second point is this, that Paul is encouraged, Paul is encouraged by the faith of his church community. This is a really big and really important idea. Sometimes, you know, we think that this is really bad, even with pastors, right? That we've, we're always kind of trying to pour into people and we, we're always pouring out and serving and trying to, you know, um, do all this for, for, for people. But here's what I notice about Paul. Paul didn't view the church as a bunch of kind of needy Christians that he had to constantly pour into and correct and, and fix. Paul saw the church community as mutually beneficial to him. So Paul says, look, I want to come see you and I want to, I want to encourage your faith, but you also encourage my faith. Like Paul saw the church not as something that he just poured into, but as people that also poured into him. Do you see that? Paul was fed, if you will, by his church community. Isn't that unbelievable? Like I have friends that were 15, 20 years ago, passionate about the church and ministry and, and just, man, they dove in after college. We're going to, I'm going to, we're going to, we're going to, you know, serve the Lord forever and ever and ever. And then years later, a lot of them have been, they're just, they're just done with ministry. They don't want to do ministry anymore. And a lot of it, you talk with them and they're like, man, I just got tired. I got burnt out. I got frustrated. And at the end of the day, for a lot of people, it's, they felt like they had to pour into, pour into, pour into, but there was no mutual benefit. There was nobody pouring into them. There was nobody encouraging them. And I love the fact that Paul, Paul has the humility to basically say, I need the church as much as the church needs me. And I just say that because I think for some of you, maybe you're ministry leaders, maybe you're small group leaders. You've been leading a small group for a long time, leading a Bible study. Sometimes, you know, it can feel like you're pouring out, pouring out, preparing, planning. I need you to know that like, you need, to, you need to think about and find ways that your ministry is a blessing to you, that your ministry is an encouragement to you. Because if not, down the road, you're going to get tired and frustrated and burn out and you're going to want to quit. And I'm convinced one of the reasons Paul never throws in the towel, one of the reasons Paul never goes, that's it, I'm out, I'm done, is because he, at these churches, man, he's pouring into them, but he also is allowing them to pour into him. Community is mutually beneficial. It's mutually beneficial. And if I can just brag on you guys for a second, I did this in the first service. Man, I'm so thankful for this church. I've been in church my whole life. My dad's a pastor. I've told you all the story, like brought up in church. And, and I've been a part of some churches that just quite frankly, weren't very encouraging. Just chewed pastors up and spit them out, right? Like just, it's tough sometimes. But I'll tell you, this church has been unbelievably encouraging to, to not only me, Austin, all of our staff. Yeah, sometimes we get some critical emails. That's okay. We're not above that. Like we need that sometimes. But I can also tell you that with all those, every critical email, we get a bunch of emails that are very encouraging and uplifting. And that's important because I want to be doing this for a long time and our, our staff do as well. And so like the Apostle Paul, we want you to know that we see you guys, we see the church as a blessing, as encouragement to us. And we hope that we are encouraging as well to you. Like you need to be a part of a church that you can pour into. 
You need to be a part of a church. You can use your gifts and use your talents and you can serve and bless and be an encouragement to the church. But you also need a church that's a blessing to you, that encourages you in your faith as well. And when I look at Paul, I'm convinced one of the things that kept him going was the fact that he saw the church as a blessing, not just a burden. Number three, look at the next couple verses, 13 and 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. He says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I love this about Paul. Paul clearly understands his purpose. Paul clearly understands his purpose. Paul knew exactly what God had called him to. Paul is called the apostle to the Gentiles. Those that are outside of the Jewish community, right? Paul was the guy that took the Christianity from this little Jewish sect, if you will, branching off from Judaism, and he took it to everyone, right? Everyone. That's what Paul understood his role was to get the gospel outside of just this one little group and get it to the rest of the world. Get it to the rest of the world. Paul says, look, I'm here for, for everyone, right? The, the young, the old, the, you know, the rich, the poor, the, the, the educated, the uneducated, like Cowboys fans and Eagles fans, right? Like he says barbarians, that's clearly Eagles fans. Like Jesus is for everybody, right? He's for everybody. And that's what Paul understood his purpose was to, to, to spread this thing, this, this message to everyone. Christ is for for all people. And Paul clearly understood that. And again, I'm convinced Paul endured a lot of pain and a lot of problems, but he understood what his purpose was. And I'm telling you, church, none of us get out of life without scars. None of us. We live in a broken, fallen, sinful world, and all of us are going to have pain and we're going to have problems. In order to make it through the pain and the problems, you need to have a purpose that's greater than your pain and your problems, right? We need to have a purpose that's greater than our pain and greater than our problems. And that's what Paul had. Paul could endure all the beatings and all the, the prison and all the shipwrecks because he understood the purpose to which God had called him. And that outweighed all that other stuff, right? There's one more point looking at uh, verse, verses uh, 15 through 17. Paul says this, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I've talked about this before. This is really important. Paul is writing to Christians in, in these churches. These are people that already have heard the gospel. They've received the gospel. They know the gospel. And yet Paul writes and says, um, I want to come to preach the gospel to you. You ever think about that? He says the same thing in other letters. He's writing to Christians, telling them that he wants to come preach the gospel. And so what this should remind us of the fact that the gospel is not just something we sort of hear and believe one time and then put it on a shelf and get on with our life. The gospel is something that we continually sort of live more fully into. Those of you that have heard the gospel story for a long time, you still need the gospel, right? You still need the gospel. And so this is what Paul's saying. Even though you've heard the gospel, I can't wait to come see you so I can preach the gospel to you, right? And so he goes on then in verse 16 is probably what is um, one of the most popular verses in all of Romans. When Paul says this, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. My last point is this, that Paul is unashamed of his message. Paul is unashamed of his message. 
This is part of what drives him to keep going is he is not ashamed of his message. And listen, like they're worshiping a guy who was crucified on a Roman cross. It was a very humiliating and shameful way to die. That's the whole reason the Romans crucified people to put them on display and make them an example to anyone else that saw them. They would leave them hanging on the cross for days and days. So people would walk by and go, I don't want to do what that guy did, right? It was a shameful, despicable, horrible way to die. Anyone that died by crucifixion, the culture around it it screamed, shame, shame, shame. And so Jesus dies on a cross and everybody around's like, you should be ashamed of that guy. And yet Christians are going, I'm not ashamed at all of that. Like Paul's boasting in the gospel. He's the opposite of ashamed. He's proud of the fact that Christ died because he says, look, it's the power of God. Paul says, here's what it did in my life. And I've seen it work in other people's lives. He is not ashamed. And listen, when you are proud of something, when you are unashamed of something, you are more bold in your proclamation of that thing. Are you with me? You're more, you're more bold. And I, I'll give a couple of sports analogies. This will be fun. I'll, we'll see what camp everybody's in, right? So uh, we got any Astros fans in the place, right? Astros are doing pretty good right now, right? They're doing pretty well. I'd say going to the World Series is a big deal. The last few years, they've actually been really good, right? The Astros are, are really good. You know who you don't see a lot of are Rangers fans right now, right? Because the Rangers are, well, terrible, right? They're just not very good. I'm actually a Rangers fan. Anyway, here's my point with Astros fans, right? Uh, I have some good friends that are big Astros fans. And, and I, I mean, I pull for the Astros too, if they're not playing the Rangers. Anyway, the, they'll, they'll wear all the Astros gear, right? Yeah, Astros. And I always want to go like 10 years ago, you couldn't find an Astros fan anywhere. They were like closet Astros fans because 10 years ago, the Astros weren't very good. And you found a lot more Rangers fans, right? Rangers were pretty good, played in a, played in a World Series. Like they were, they were pretty good a while back. Now it's kind of changed. That's okay. That's, there's ebbs and flows. It happens. But here's the thing, like Astros fans right now, they're proud of their team. They're unashamed of their team. And so they're pretty bold in their proclamation of their team. I could use the same analogy with my, my Aggie friends. We got any Aggies in the room? They do weird stuff like whooping and hissing. It's like a cult. Uh, and if there's anything your pastor could tell you, it's don't join a cult, okay? So you got, your, you got your Aggies fans, right? And listen, I've got a lot of really good Aggie friends. And several weeks back, uh, they had just lost their second game at home to an unranked opponent and they all needed meds. They were all like depressed, like all of them. They were like, the team is terrible and oh, the quarterback's awful. Like they were all, and then like a week later, they beat the number one team in the nation, right? And they start whooping again, right? <laughs> and they're all proud, right? They're all proud. They're like, yeah, sporting the Aggies now. We're the best ever. Like this is what happens when you're unashamed of your, of the, of the product, when you're unashamed of the message, you're much more bold in your proclamation of the message. And so Paul's sitting here saying, look, this thing that the world, that culture says we should be ashamed of, he's going, I'm not ashamed of this at all. As Christians, we're not ashamed of the gospel. And I think that fuels Paul. I think it fuels him to keep going, to press on in the midst of all the heartache and the pain. I've got to wrap up, but here's the thing. I, want you to, I wanted to do this this week. Instead of getting into a lot of the deep theology of Paul, which is where we're going, I wanted you to understand a little bit about the person. And rather than you know, us spend time debating all the theology of Paul and which camp you're in, and do you believe this? Or the, what do you think Paul's saying here? I think there's something we could all agree on, and that's that maybe we should be more uh, ready to imitate the zeal and the passion and the activity and the mission of Paul. He was just a man that got after it. And I know that we look at him and go, man, that is really hard, but how did he do it? Well, number one, he operated out of a strong sense of identity. Paul knew who he was and whose he was. And we need to do the same.
Paul was encouraged by his faith community. He didn't see them as a burden. He saw them as a blessing. It was a mutually beneficial relationship. And if we're going to do what God's called us to do, we've got to be in community and be encouraged and blessed by our community. Paul's clearly understood his, his purpose. To get through problems and pain, you've got to have a purpose bigger than your problems and your pain. And finally, Paul was unashamed of the message. And that gave him boldness to preach, to write, to plant churches, and to endure whatever the world threw at him. I'm telling you, church, if we can, if we can imitate that part of Paul, man, there is, there is no limit to what God can do in and through us as a church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, we thank you for your, your servant, Paul, this unbelievable man who you used to accomplish so much. And God, in a, in a very real way, we are here today uh, as Christians who, who know the gospel um, and as a church, largely uh, because of the ministry and the work of the Apostle Paul. And so God, we, we thank you for his life. Um, he was not a perfect man. And we don't worship Paul, but we worship the same guy that Paul worshiped. Jesus, we're thankful for the cross today. We're thankful for your work on the cross that God allows us to find our identity in you. And I, I just pray, Father, we would do that. That we would find our identity in you and we would operate out of that identity. And God, we just... Um, God, I pray that you would just give us the strength and the courage that we need to not just debate the words of Paul, but to imitate the work of Paul. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.